Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. This season, we are posting the recordings from our HBG Bible Talks event in 2021 with Brother Ben Hall of Brooklyn, New York, titled Continuing the Kingdom, Lessons from the Book of Acts. Don't let open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. After all the problems in Jerusalem, all the disciples scattered and went to different places. And in uh, the rest of Acts chapters 8 through 10, we get sort of some adventures of individual disciples like Peter, Philip, uh, I guess those two in particular, how they interact with people, brought from the Lord, etc., In Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, we come back to the same scene as in Acts chapter 8, where the problems that arose caused them to scatter. And they still went about preaching the word. Acts 11 and verse 19 says this. So those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenician, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. A large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he had brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And the line in verse 26 is a great one and a a special one and a um, perhaps it's meant to be a surprising one to us a little bit or a notable one. Uh, Here these people are following the Lord Jesus the best they could. Maybe we could say even sort of venturing out a little further out into their following of Jesus than before, doing things that they weren't maybe 100 percent sure because they hadn't done them before, whether it was going to work or whether it was the right idea. But they were pretty sure it was clearly. And the hand of the Lord is with them. He blessed them in it. And they did lots of other things. It was obviously a place. Oh, we'll talk more about it here in a second. But verse 26 is sort of this, I think, meant to be a summary statement of how big of a deal the work of the Lord was in Antioch. I think the way we're supposed to read verse 26, based on the way the word Christian is used in the rest of the New Testament, is not that one day they were sitting around, they were like, hey, guys, y'all want to start calling ourselves Christians? What do you think about that? Sounds pretty good. I like that. It sounds good. I don't think that's it. I think what it was is they'd be interacting with people in the marketplace or friends and neighbors or whatever, and then they'd walk away, and those unbelieving neighbors would be sitting there, and, and they'd be like, Hey, do you know what his deal is? Why does he talk that way? Or why doesn't he go with us to the emperor worship stuff? Or why why is he so faithful to his wife? Or why is she so – what's going on with them? And then the other person would say, oh, don't you know? Know what? He's one of those uh, 
I don't know, Christians. You know what I mean? They follow Christ all the time. That's what they're always talking about. They're Christians. I don't know that it was meant to be a complimentary term or a positive term even. The way it's used later in the book of Acts kind of seems like, um, and I'm blanking on the name of the ruler that said it. Somebody can help me by saying it out loud. But as Paul was speaking to him, I think it was Agrippa, he said, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? I don't think that's like, oh, interesting. I've thought about it. He's saying, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? I can't be one of y'all. Y'all are weirdos. Peter uses this in 1 Peter chapter 4 to say, if you suffer in the name Christian, which is an interesting way of saying it. Why would he say it that way? Maybe the idea was it was sort of a slur. It was sort of a pejorative term that you, you'd be called a Christian. It wasn't a cool thing. It wasn't a good thing. Um, but here's the point, not whether it was or what. Maybe it was. Maybe they did sit around and say, let's start calling each other Christians. Whatever it was, whether it was they themselves determined to call themselves that or the people around them just looked at them and said, that's what we're going to call you guys. The reason was because they were following the Lord so closely that his name becomes some, became synonymous with their very identity and character. That's what the word Christian really means. Of course, you all know that word is really sort of kind of nothing now. You know, like what is a Christian anyways? For some people from some parts of the world, it just means I've deconverted from the faith of my culture back in my homeland and I'm a Westerner now. And so I'm Christian. Well, do you believe in Jesus? Um, I like him. But no, I mean, are you have you been baptized? Oh, no, I haven't done that or anything like that. I'm just not X, Y, Z religion. So I'm Christian now. Or people say this is a this is, there's a type of music or there's a nation or there's literature. That's that's not the point. That word is to describe people that were following Jesus so closely that his name became synonymous with their name. But that's certainly something that uh, we should want. We should want is that we're following Jesus so closely that his name becomes synonymous with us. What was it about them that made that happen? There's probably a lot of right answers, but there's one, I think, in the middle of this text that helps us understand what made them follow him so closely. Barnabas, the man who's mentioned here, who showed up in Antioch, uh, he had appeared earlier in the story. We mentioned him a few minutes ago, a couple hours now, uh, in Acts chapter 4, where there the saints were in Jerusalem, struggling, poor folks, and Barnabas had some wealth. And he gave up his wealth to benefit his brethren. And it says in that text in Acts chapter 4 that Barnabas' nickname that was given to him by the apostles was the son of encouragement. So he was a big deal, uh, well-known among the brethren. His opinion was so important that whenever Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor who had been killing Christians and having them killed, showed up in the church in Jerusalem and wanted to join himself to them. They said, a nice try, but no, we're not going to let you sneak in that way, buddy. And yet it was Barnabas who spoke up for him. And that's significant that Barnabas would speak up for somebody that had some of, we might presume, Barnabas's close friends, maybe even family members arrested and killed. It's not just that that's special about Barnabas, but it shows how well regarded he was that it was just Barnabas's words sticking up for Saul that the church said, okay, guess we'll take this guy. Uh, And so he was sent to Antioch by the church in Jerusalem to see what was going on there. And did you notice what the text says that Barnabas saw? There's a lot of things it could have said. Could have said Barnabas saw a diverse community. We'll talk more about that in a second. He would have seen that. Could have said he saw hardworking people. That was certainly true. He saw courage. He saw faith. He could have seen all sorts of things. Did you notice what it says there in verse 23? When he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. He witnessed the grace of God. I love that notion that God's grace is something we see. 
Certainly the only reason the kingdom of God exists is by God's grace. From the time of the fall all the way up into every one of our individual falls into sin and all that sort of thing, God could have just wiped us all off the face of the planet and said, you know what, forget it. I'm done. I'm not doing this. But he didn't. The fact that he sent Jesus was an act of grace. Jesus' death on the cross was an act of grace. Jesus taking the throne and inviting us all to continue his kingdom work with him, to be his disciples, to be forgiven of our sins, and to work with him in the world, that's an act of grace. Paul would talk that way. He said, the fact that I get to serve, the fact that I get to be a part of God's work in the universe, that's a gift. It's the grace of God. And the thing that people, and maybe people who are outside the body of Christ, they couldn't see what it was. All they could see was, these people who keep talking about Christ, I'm going to call them Christians. When Barnabas came, he knew. I mean, he already knew they were following Christ. What he saw wasn't just strange people. He saw the grace of God in them. That's what we're going for, is that people would be able to see the grace of God in us. Not so they, well, that, that whole notion itself. Obviously, it's not so people would think we're so special. But so that in us, they actually wouldn't see anything special intrinsically here. But they would see the thing that's been driving God's kingdom work throughout history, that he's good, that he's full of love, that he's a merciful and kind God and patient. He's gracious. And that's what draws people in to the kingdom. How do we live that way? How do we live in such a way that people could witness the grace of God, that they would see us following Jesus so closely, they would actually see him and see his grace in our lives? I'd like to explore that for a few minutes here in the church at Antioch. Uh, we'll primarily be here in Acts 11, although we're going to jump to a couple other texts in the book of Acts and uh, try to notice some principles that we can gain from our ancient brethren of what it means to really be Christians, what it means uh, to be people who are living by the grace of God. So the first thing I think we see here in Antioch is extreme counterculturalism. They were different kind of folks, so much so they got named a name or adopt name, whatever you want to say. They were a, a different people group. Paul would talk this way to the church in uh, Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10. He said there, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. And do you hear what he's doing when he says that? He's saying we are a different, different ethnic group. We're different than everybody else. We're not like Jews. We can't be categorized as Jews, though some of us may be Jewish. We can't be categorized as Greeks, though certainly all you Corinthians, you are literally Greeks. That's where you are from. We're not either of those things, though. We're a whole nother thing. We are a counterculture in the world. We are the church of God. So what is it that made them countercultural? Because uh, some people just like being countercultural. And that's fine, I guess. You know, uh, it may be some of you. I don't know all you very well. Some of you may just like weird music. You don't even like the music. You just know nobody else does. And you want to be able to be that person. It's like, I like this band. You know what I mean? Some of you dress ways or you do certain activities that nobody else. And that's it. And OK, good for you. Happy for you. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, here, what we're talking about is counterculturalism on purpose and not for any personal reasons. Um, what was it that made them countercultural? Well, well, one thing was, according to verses 19 through 21, they were really ruled by the gospel. This strange thing they would do where they showed up in town and they didn't just show up and say, well, we were preached the gospel. We know the truth and we're going to live this way. They showed up and they started telling everybody else Jesus is king, which was a strange thing to do. Um, I'm not an ancient historian. Some of you probably are even more than me. But what little I know, and you could learn even more by going and doing a little research on the city of Antioch and the history of it and its place in Greco-Roman culture, where this was a place that really celebrated the rule of Caesars and other ancient rulers, Antiochus, Antioch. Right? Um, 
they showed up and they were not talking about Antiochus. They weren't talking about any of the rule. They were ruled by the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what they were talking about. Their conversation was governed by this, and that made them countercultural. They were stuck out because of the thing they told people about. Um, that their dedication to the Lord made them disregard the problems that for most people would make people be crippled or emotionally and socially and stuff. They disregarded that stuff. Verse 19 is honestly a shocking verse. Persecution arose. They leave and they go to these places. And in verse uh, 19, it says they went into Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one but Jews alone. But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene. In other words, it wasn't like Antioch was their hometown. So think about it. You weren't in your hometown in Jerusalem. You became a Christian. So you were kind of a stranger there. And then you get driven out in Antioch for whatever reason. Maybe that's where the economic opportunities were. Maybe that's just where you landed. I don't know why they ended up there. But for whatever, you weren't from there. You're from Cyprus or Cyrene. This isn't your hometown either. And you would think, you know what? Last time we got serious about this stuff, we, we, got, we can't do this. It might cause trouble. It might get us in trouble. They disregarded that. We're dedicated to the Lord. We've got to keep on being faithful to him, even though we're in this other strange place. And, yeah, we're going to be weird. And it's not going to be as much protection even as having literally thousands of people on our team in the city of Jerusalem. Who knows? It could have been just a handful, maybe a couple dozen, maybe fewer in Antioch at first. We don't know. But certainly there's no impression given that it was a big group of people that was supported. They disregarded any of those challenges or the feelings of insecurity that might come with that. They remain dedicated to the Lord, remain in this countercultural um, posture in, in the city of Antioch. And especially when it came to um, the way they interacted with other human beings, they were extremely countercultural. That's verses 20 and 21, where the note at the end of verse 19, at first they got there and they're just talking to people like them. I think that's the message. People like them where they would feel a little safer, where we wouldn't feel as countercultural. When we eat, we don't have to talk about what we're not going to eat because we're all Jews here. We know what the no's are and what the OK's are. And on Sabbath, you're not going to invite me to go help you work on something because we all keep Sabbath because we're Jews and it's all easy and nice. We don't have to be there's nothing anything weird about this. But then some of them said, you know what, man, I don't know. I keep reading in these prophets about all nations and whatnot. And didn't Jesus tell the apostles? I thought I remembered Bartholomew one time saying that the apostles were told to go to all nations. We're kind of here. Don't you think we should probably preach to those guys, too? Dude, they eat pork. I don't think we can do that. They're not, you know, they don't do all that. They don't know. I don't know, man. I think we got to do it. That's weird. I know. We're weird. Don't you know? We're <laughs> countercultural. That's the thing. And this is strange. This goes against my cultural proclivities, the people I'm comfortable with, right? Doesn't matter. They were willing to have their uh, viewpoint of other human beings dictated not by what society told them, but by what the Lord told them, what the gospel told them, what they should believe in that regard. And so they saw opportunity and they said, okay, whatever I might have expected or whatever people might expect, I don't care about expectations. I don't care about what people perceive me to be or what I should be or what I shouldn't be. I'm going to do what I think is right. And that's going to be different. But that's all right. And that's going to be a risky thing, really. Um, we know it's risky because in verse 23, notice what does Barnabas have to encourage them to do or to think or to be? He said he encouraged them with a resolute heart to stay steadfast. In other words, this was not easy to do. There was opposition. There were challenges like we was discussed earlier. We got to be different. And not just different because we like being different, but we got to be different because of what the Lord has done for us. The Lord was countercultural. Whenever he left heaven, I don't guess there was anybody else up there who thought that would be a good idea or would want to do that to come be a human being. 
And then certainly when, even when Jesus was a human being, he was going against every cultural norm and every standard that every human being did. And if we're going to follow him, if we're going to be filled and guided by his grace, we're going to have to be different. So maybe here's the way we should think about this. You remember that place where Jesus said the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who go on that. But the way is narrow that leads to eternal life, and only a few will find it. I'm not saying every single time the majority is wrong, but maybe most of the time, that's what Jesus would say. Many of the times, except I think it's most of the time, but you get what I'm saying. Whenever I hear a perspective on money, sex, relationships, keep filling in the blanks, all the stuff, work ethic, whatever. I need to go and assume I have to be different than that. Now, it may turn out that those people actually know God's will and they're doing God's will. Great. OK, cool. But I need to go and assume that probably I'm not going to be able to agree with all my friends and neighbors. And I don't want to be disagreeable on purpose just to be a jerk. But I do want to be different like the Lord because I want to follow the Lord so closely that people don't look at me and call me a blank, blank N, whatever that is, socially, politically, whatever. What I want to be known is as a Christian. That's what I want to be. So that people won't see the world in me, but they'll see the grace of God and be drawn to him through that, through my countercultural discipleship. All right. What else made these people special? What else made them Christians? What else uh, manifested the grace of God? It wasn't just their counterculturalism, but it was their mutual encouragement because it is hard to keep being weird. That's why different weird people find other same kinds of weird people. You ever notice that the kids in the lunchroom table? Even the ones that are like, oh, we're different. It's like, if you're so different, why are there like 20 of y'all sitting there all dressed the same way, all talking the same way, all listen to the same one band that nobody else listens to except you guys and apparently a bunch of people you found on the Internet. You know, what I mean? Because it's hard to be countercultural. And so what you need is mutual encouragement. You need somebody to keep you going. And of course, even besides the counterculturalism, encouragement is one of mutual encouragement, caring about each other, lifting each other, supporting each other is a great manifestation of the grace of God because it shows I care about you and I want to lift you up. I don't want you to get beaten down. I don't want you to give up on this thing. I want you to stay strong. I want you to stay anchored in the good things that God has given us. Uh, and so it's really important if we want to be true disciples of Jesus, if we want to be a community of grace, a city set on the hill that cannot be hidden, we got to be people who engage in mutual encouragement. Barnabas is, is kind of the star of the show here, although really all he is is a manifestation of this principle in general. Um, so notice some things about uh, Barnabas. And I said he's the star of the show, but actually think about the whole reason Barnabas gets to be the star of this show here in chapter 11. Uh, Barnabas was not the one who led the attack in Antioch. Who did, by the way? Do you see that? Who led the attack in Antioch? Do you know their names? Do you know if they were old or young or what their jobs were, male or female? I don't know. They were people following Jesus, and he saw the grace of God in them. Think about some of the ways that Antioch encouraged uh, Barnabas. Barnabas was sent there and decided to stay there because of the work that they had done. You know, Whenever you're serious about working for the Lord, whenever we're serious about working for the Lord, that's a big encouragement to other people. When someone comes and visits a congregation of people who said, hey, let's get together all day on a Saturday, when we've got jobs to do and we've got rest we need, but we'd like to sit here and talk about the word of God and spend time with our brethren. That's important. That's encouragement. Whenever a congregation of God's people are doing that, that's what Barnabas saw when he was there. Uh, they embodied God's grace. 
the way that they were living showed Barnabas something as far as how they were living and what they were doing. And notice what he says that he saw about them. They were true to the Lord, verse 23, and they needed to remain that way. Um, and because of that, it says that he rejoiced, verse 23. Antioch was a tremendous encouragement to Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Well, you would think he's pretty good at encouragement. They were so good at it, they surprised and impressed the guy who was good at encouragement. Now, Barnabas himself also does a lot. He exhorts them to faithfulness. He exhorted them to remain true to the Lord. Um, but have you ever had somebody tell you something and it doesn't actually encourage you very much? Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and we're not trying to take shots at anybody here, but that happens sometimes. That could be on your job. That could be back when you were a kid in school. That could be whatever. Somebody encourages you, exhorts you to something, and it just kind of falls flat. Why is that? Usually it's because of what you know about the person. You know, that exhortation you gave me, it doesn't mean much because I know you don't really believe that because I see your life. You're not that serious about it. What does the text say about Barnabas, though? The reason why he was able to encourage them to remain true to the Lord. Verse 24. What's the first word in verse 24? For because. In other words, he his words meant something to them because he was a good man. He's a good man. Now, we know there's no one good except God. That's what Jesus said. So what that must mean is Barnabas really was, as the text goes on to say, full of the Holy Spirit. He was a God man. He was he was God was in him and working in him. That's what made him a good man, full of the spirit and of faith. Um, if we want to be encouragers, the way we need to start with that is get get your stuff right. Repent of your sins every day. Be prayerful. Be devoted to God. Be someone who's genuinely godly and righteous, and you'll be able to be an encouragement. Sometimes I think we think, oh, if I want to encourage people, I've got to know these magical words because there are some people that have magical words. You know, the people I'm talking about. Every time you talk to them, you're like, wow, that was amazing. What you said to me, that really stuck with me. And then I look at myself like, I don't I can't do that. I just I don't have those magic words. I guess I'm not going to be a good encourager. Or some people are just so joyful it just seeps out of them and when that you sit close to them it just kind of oozes out and then it infects you with their joy and it's great and i'm not that kind of person i kind of actually put people off a little bit by the way i am just my i don't want to be that way and we think being an encourager is a personality trait it's not it's about being a good person a godly person full of the holy spirit and the faith and you will encourage people you will you really will and then you tell them stuff whenever you have something to say but it may not be magical words. It may just be something honest, something simple. And that's the stuff that really hits. Another thing about Barnabas that I think shows us how to be uh, an encouragement to each other and how to mutually encourage each other. What if Barnabas had said, man, you know what? Being in Jerusalem was kind of cool, but I was, I mean, obviously at best, I was going to be the 13th man there because there's 12 <laughs> apostles and I was never going to be a big shot. But in Antioch, I mean, they really like me here and I like being here. I could be I could run this show and kind of be important. What's the first thing that Barnabas does, though? He looks around at what's going on. He's so happy and excited about it. He's like, you know, what, guys, I'll be right back. And I'm sure it took a long time, but he goes and, and look at what the text actually says in verse 25. It says he left for Tarsus to look for Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor, the guy who was killing the Christians and all that sort of thing. He thought, you know what? I think Saul could use this place, and I think this place could use Saul. I don't know what all Barnabas had in mind. Maybe he knew it would be tough for a lot of places to embrace Saul. But you know, this group of people with this strange countercultural mix of 
weirdos that all are loving the Lord and coming from different cultures and stuff. I think these people might embrace him. At least the Greeks, they don't have the baggage that some of the Jews would have. Let me bring him here. Instead of having this place where he's like, I'm going to be the man and I'm going to be important here. He was inclusive. He was somebody that wanted to bring others into the work, much like the people in Antioch. The people in Antioch received Barnabas. They didn't say, hey, we're fine. This is our church. We don't need any help here. They're like, great, come on in. And then Saul, yeah, come on, man. We know you did the bad stuff. We all did bad stuff. Come on, let's all work together. There was an inclusive nature to the way that they operated. And people could see grace in that. It takes a lot of grace to be inclusive with others, to bring them into the work you're doing, to make it not just your deal where you're important, but come on, we're all kind of not important at all. We're just following Jesus. But in that way, we're all really important because we're serving the Lord. He was inclusive. How encouraging must that have been for Saul to be, I don't know, in his tent making shop in Tarsus or whatever he was doing there, preaching one Sunday. And there sits down Barnabas. Barnabas, what are you doing here, man? I haven't seen you in a while. Listen, I'd love for you to move with me to Antioch. Why? Antioch, what's going on there? Some great stuff. And I think you and me should go help them out and be helped by them. God's grace is seen whenever we look to the needs of one another and mutually encourage each other. In our faith. So just a couple of practical things about being an encouragement. What this requires is getting outside of we, it's overused phrase. So I don't know. There's probably a better phrase. Somebody help me afterwards with this. Get outside your comfort zone. Find somebody who's different than you. Find a situation that's different than the normal social situation you have. Just try to connect with somebody. You know, be there for somebody. You don't have to say magic words. Actually, usually the most magical thing you can do to encourage somebody is just listen. See what's going on with them. And then at the end of that, say, well, I really wish I had something to say, but I don't. But I'd love if we prayed together right now. That's encouraging. And get outside your comfort zone. Um, and that means that as we're doing that, we should also be paying attention to each other. Barnabas, apparently, while he was there, was thinking, who else could use this place or who else could this place use? Oh, yeah, Saul. Saul would be going. He noticed what was going on there and he noticed and thought good things about Saul. And he wanted to accentuate the gifts of his brother. Part of encouraging is noticing and accentuating the good things about each other, not to just beat each other down. We got to criticize each other. We got to exhort each other. We got to call each other to repentance when we need it. But whenever possible, we should figure out how to accentuate the good. And actually, the more we accentuate the good, the more the bad is going to diminish because the good is going to grow stronger and stronger. Part of our mutual encouragement is noticing good in each other. Barnabas saw the grace of God. You know what I bet he also saw? People who were immature, people who were a little selfish, people who were still a little worldly. This place wasn't perfect, but he saw the grace of God and he wanted to accentuate that. Notice the good and accentuate the good in each other in being an encouragement. And of course, as we've already said, be personally dedicated. Lord, be a good person. Be full of the Holy Spirit and a faith if you want to be uh, an, uh, an encouragement. All right. These people were so dedicated to Jesus that they became known as Christians. His name became synonymous with theirs. The grace of God was truly among them because they were people who were not going to be like the world. They were countercultural and they were people who were looking to encourage each other, to strengthen each other in their dedication to the Lord. What else made them special? The next one's pretty obvious. And I don't want to spend as much time on this because really this is going to feed into our last discussion here in a few minutes. But I think it's impossible to run past it and we probably can't talk too much about it. But that is their radical sacrifice. Grace is a sacrifice. Grace means that you give. To someone else. And it's not cheap. Grace is not cheap. Real grace is not, at least. And if the grace of God has really come in and transformed our hearts and our souls, 
then that means we're not going to live cheap lives in terms of the way we treat other people. We're going to live with an open hand, open hands, open arms. We're going to be radically sacrificial in our giving. Uh, you see that with Saul and Barnabas. They moved to a place that was not their home, that perhaps would have been uncomfortable for them in various ways. They move here to help us. You back it up. These people who came from Jerusalem, they came from uh, uh, Cyprus and Cyrene, they were people who came to give in Antioch, not to see what they could take out of this new city where they lived, but they moved to the city and thought, how can we do something to give? What kind of sacrifice can we make? And yeah, some people, some of my Jewish friends are going to look at me a little sideways when they know that I'm fraternizing with Greeks and eating dinner with people that I never ate dinner with before, that's fine. That's a sacrifice I may have to make, but that's fine. And it's a radical thing, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, but you especially see it near the end of what we read here in the text in chapter 11, where it says that uh, this prophet Agabus uh, speaks of famine that's going to occur with brethren in Jerusalem. Yeah. Now that means here in Antioch, remember this is I don't know, was it 50 percent? Was it 75 percent Greek speaking or I mean Greek people, not just Greek speaking, but actually non-Jews? And one day Agabus says there's going to be a famine. It's going to cover the whole world. And, you know, all those saints that are getting persecuted and losing their jobs and their husbands got taken away. And so there's widowed women who have children still that are orphaned now in Jerusalem and they're barely making it as it is. And there's going to be a famine. So there you go. There's the info, guys. And then maybe one of the shepherds in Antioch stands up and says, all right, what are we going to do about it, y'all? And somebody, I don't know who, had the notion that we should help them out. That's our family. I don't know if they would eat dinner with us because they're Jews and they may not have all that figured out yet, but that's our family. So you know what? Let's get some money together and send it to them or food, whatever, supplies, whatever it was that they sent. We're going to take care of them. That's radical. That kind of sacrifice, you know, it does say notice where the famine was going to hit. It said the famine was going to be all over the world. You know what's all in all over the world? Antioch. But they said they need something. So even though we're going to get hit with this too, we're going to help them. We're going to make sacrifices. We're going to cut back some to provide for our brethren who are in need. That's radical. But that's what the grace of God causes you to do is to be a conduit of grace to others. Let me show you one other example of, of their uh, radical grace is chapter 13. Flip over to chapter 13. This is sometime later, and in chapter 13 in verse 1, it says, Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. What's the list? Barnabas, right at the top. Maybe that implies he was kind of the lead dog, the one that everybody looked to the most, the one that everybody was most excited to hear what he had to say about important things. Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menane, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Saul's listed last, maybe as sort of a bookend. Our big guys, Barnabas and Saul. That'd be cool to have Barnabas and Saul be preachers at your church. That's pretty good. And I imagine the fact those other guys are listed meant they must have not been scrubs either. And they were pretty good, too. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Would you have liked that very much? All those nights you had gone over to Barnabas's house to talk about the problems you were having at your job trying to be faithful. All those times Paul had counseled you through the temptations that you were trying to overcome as a new Christian. All those sermons and classes and times in prayer where these brothers have done all these good things. 
the just deep love you had for them. And then one day, God says, okay, they're going to go. What would you have said or done? You know what I don't see here? I don't see them say, um, I don't know if that's what the Holy Spirit, let's fast some more and pray some more because I don't think that can be. It can't be that we're giving these guys up. You know, more than the money they gave up in chapter 11, I have to imagine that giving up these two human beings who meant so much to them would have been far harder. But I don't see a moment of hesitation with these people. Now, I'm sure they were upset. I'm sure they were disappointed. I'm sure they didn't really want to see them go. But there's not a moment of hesitation. There's a need somewhere else. See you around, Saul. Or maybe not. I don't know. Bye, Barnabas. Thanks for everything. Love you. We'll see you in the resurrection. Bye. They made sacrifices for the good of God's work in the world. And someone imagine that Sunday when Saul and Barnabas are getting ready to take off and everybody's crying and hugging them, but kind of happy and sad at the same time. And it's all weird. And somebody who's there say, why are you guys doing this? And it's that same neighbor who was asking what was going on with those people at the beginning. And the guy says, well, I mean, you know, I'm one of them now. This is what we Christians do. And I know it's a bad word out there and everybody calls us this name to insult us. But what we believe is that God's been really gracious to us. So we got to do some strange things like giving up our time together, giving up our money. We give up whatever. We make sacrifices because God's made so many sacrifices for us. So what you're seeing right here, this happy and sad departure and hugging and kissing while Barnabas and Saul leave, it's the grace of God in radical sacrifice. That's all I'm going to say about that right now. Like I said, we'll come back to that in a minute. Last thing that we're going to note about the church at Antioch um, that I think is, is important and may seem like a just curveball out of left field. But um, another thing that we see in the church at Antioch that is a demonstration of the grace of God is doctrinal conviction, doctrinal conviction. Look at Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is another little encounter with the church at Antioch. And it says in verse 1, some men, by the way, this is after Saul and Barnabas had gone around preaching and teaching. And, uh, and at this time, Paul has come back into town with Barnabas, and they would they would check back in with Antioch. So that goodbye wasn't forever, it turns out. And they were back in town. And in Acts 15 and verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, well, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren, that is the church at Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church at Antioch, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So here's how this went down. One, I don't know, Thursday night, Sunday afternoon, sometime, some dudes showed up. And started teaching this doctrine. Well, you got to basically become a Jew if you want to be saved, you know, because Christ belongs to the Jews. So you got to be circumcised so that you'll be a Jew. And yeah, your baptism is great, repentance. You got to do that too. But you got to be a Jew for any of this stuff to count. You got to be circumcised uh, to be saved. Notice it doesn't say that Paul and Barnabas said, hmm, interesting difference of opinion there. We'll just agree to disagree. Do you notice what it said about them? They had great dissension. And not just like, you're wrong. They were willing to work on it. Let's debate this. Let's sit down. Let's crack open some scripture and start talking about it. They really went at it a little bit. Uh, I imagine with a good attitude, but still, they went at it. 
And the whole church wasn't squeamish about it either. They weren't like, oh, hey, yeah, stop arguing. Like, that's fine. Let's all just be friends, man. Remember mutual encouragement and love and all that stuff. They're like, look, we, honestly, all that other stuff won't matter if we don't actually know what the what the rules are in this game. It's not going to work. So, yeah, we got to care a lot about the doctrine. So much so that it says they sent them, right? You see that in verse 2? The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up. So there, there were some people saying, you know what, guys? Y'all are saying this is what the apostles are preaching. I don't believe that for a second, but you know what? We're going to find out if they really are. So we're going to get a group together, hey, you, you, and you. Y'all are going Paul and Barnabas, and you guys who are saying the thing about the circumcision, you all get together. We'll pay for it. Whatever we need to happen, we're going to get y'all there, and we'll get this thing straightened out. The church there was extremely concerned about their doctrinal conviction. It takes a lot of time and effort and energy. You ever notice that? Whenever you have to work on what's true. Because some things are not very clear. I have to believe the amount of effort that was given to defend this doctrine illustrates to me that there were good godly people that found this persuasive at this time. There were evil people who were using this doctrine to enslave people. That's clear. Read the book of Galatians. But there were good godly people who were being deceived by this and taken by it. Um, and so the church said, we got to work on this. We got to figure it out. And it's not very clear, very easy, but we're going to deal with it. And we're going to make big investments in this. And we're not going to be shaken off of our convictions. You might say, well, how, what does this have to do with the grace of God? You know, when they actually got to Jerusalem, remember what the conclusion was about this question? Do you have to be circumcised or not? Look at part of the discussion in verse 10. Peter is speaking. The apostle Peter says, now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The yoke being this false teaching that you've got to be circumcised. And listen to verse 11. What Peter says is the, the truth that we need to hold to the realization that the truth brings us to verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. You cannot know the grace of God without knowing the truth of God. Do you remember what it said about Jesus whenever he came to earth? John chapter 1. We beheld his glory. What was so great about him? He was full of grace and truth. And not in some sort of counterbalancing, like sometimes Jesus was grace and then he kind of got the truth. No, no, no. Grace and truth were merged. Sometimes we talk about balance as if there's these competing things, love and truth and grace and truth, and they balance each other. They don't balance each other. Balance implies they're competing entities. They're not competing entities. They're blended in the same thing. They're just two sides of the same exact coin. They're not fighting against each other. And if people are going to see the grace of God in us, if they're going to see us to where they would call us Christians, people where they see the glory of God in Jesus through the way we live, it's only going to be when we're people that are as committed to the truth as Jesus himself was. That's how they're going to see the grace of God. That's why we read this book. That's why when we come up on strange and challenging doctrines, we actually work on it. We don't just run past it. Now, I know some things you don't need to spend, you know, a year and a half working on some one tiny little doctrine. you got to keep moving, working on other things and all that. I know that we need to be careful about making hobby horses, other things that aren't that big of a deal. But some things are a really big deal. And actually, it's all a deal that we need to be working on and coming to personal conviction and encouraging each other to be harmonious in our conviction in the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when people see us, they'll see a people that are living in Christ, living in the grace of God. We've got to be convicted of doctrine. By the way, they did. And can I show you what the result was whenever they um, continued 
in this doctrine. If you look at uh, verse 32, well, 30, after the people in Jerusalem said, no, those bozos who are saying you got to be circumcised, we don't believe that. Don't listen to that. We're saved by the grace of God. That's our doctrinal conviction because that's the truth of the matter, according to Jesus. Verse 30 of chapter 15 says, so when they were sent on their way, they went down to Antioch and they gathered the congregation together and they delivered the letter. They delivered the news. Hey, cool. We've got it. Listen to the response. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. We're right back to where we started. Jews coming to Antioch, counterculturally living, mutually encouraging the brethren to do what was right and sharing in the joy of it. And then continuing on, verse 33, they spent sent time there and they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. Being sent out implies not just like, OK, thanks for visiting. Bye. I have to imagine that being sent out meant they were in some way aided on their way. There was a sacrifice made for them. You see, we're just right back to where we started because they were convicted in the truth of the gospel. They shared in this and they continued on in the grace of God. If we want to be people who are really Christians, that people look at and say, what's going on with you? And the answer is, well, we just look like Jesus. We're following him so closely that we look just like him. It's only going to be when we live as a community of grace. Or when someone comes upon us, what they're seeing, whether they realize it or not, is the grace of God. God help us in that. Thanks for your good attention. Thanks so much for listening today. We hope this lesson was helpful to you. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a rating or a review that will help us reach more people. If you're interested in online Bible studies, please reach out to us, 717-585-0949 or capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information or group studies, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.